Good afternoon. I'm Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. I'm very happy to join you all today with my friend Victor Davis Hanson, one of the preeminent thinkers of our time and a longtime contributing editor to City Journal. I know many of you have been eager for us to feature Victor at an event, so here it is. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. He's a professor emeritus of classics at California State University. And he's the author of more than two dozen books, including Carnage and Culture, The Savior Generals, and more recently, The Second World Wars, and last year's The Case for Trump. He writes regularly for the National Review and for countless other publications, including City Journal. He's a frequent Fox News contributor, and he's featured on two podcasts, the Victor Davis Hanson podcast with National Review's Jack Fowler and Hoover's The Classicist, in which he talks with Troy Senek. And if all that weren't enough, he continues to operate his family farm outside Selma, California, where I once had the great pleasure of visiting him. Uh, Victor is a former Riston Prize recipient, and he has received the nation's highest honor in the humanities, the National Humanities Medal. So thanks for joining us today, Victor. Thank uh, you. Great pleasure to have you and to see you, you know, if only virtually. Uh, we'll have a 40-minute or so discussion followed by questions from the audience. So uh, let me start yeah. with what's on everybody's mind. Uh, I think as this election, like 2016 revealed, uh, America is a very polarized country and it's a polarization that's political, it's cultural, and now increasingly geographical. You've written a lot you know, for us and in a number of your books about the, the kind of tension and even conflict between the rural and the urban. How do you see that divide going forward in the United States? You know, divide the cities, especially coastal cities, and their voters against folks in non-urban areas. What are the full implications? Well, I'm very worried because I think those trends that you talk about and that I wrote for you at uh, City Journal have been accentuated by the lockdown. By that I mean we've created force multiplying effects of the Zoom culture of people who were ensconced, like I have been in my farm and really haven't suffered a, a large economic hit versus the people that serve us. That is the Amazon delivery people that have to take risk with the virus if, uh, to the degree they do, or people who are out there with small businesses or barbershops or gyms or coffee shops. And then more importantly, uh, under our federal system, there are people in red states who feel that once the citizenry is apprised of the dangers that they're adult enough to make their own decisions and the blue states uh, have had different policies. I'm speaking from California where we cannot celebrate Thanksgiving inside with more than three people from three different families. We have to wear masks inside and we have to have our bathrooms cleansed, we, we're told, every 15 minutes. This is a state, remember, that on the jubilation at Biden's victory had thousands of people take to the streets in our major cities. And then of course, all summer long as well after George Floyd's death. So I think the lockdown, the virus has accentuated this idea of two cultures. And as I said earlier, we have ideological differences, but globalization rich, enriched cities like New York or Boston with windows on the EU and Europe, and then where I am with windows on Shanghai or Seoul or Tokyo, and outsourcing, offshoring, and displacement of industry hurt everybody in between. And anytime you have an ideological or political difference accentuated by geography, 
We haven't had that except during the Civil War. Uh, you and I grew up, Brian, remember that there was this old coalition on the Republican side between farm states and Pennsylvania or even New York. And then there were New Englanders voting in concert with Southern Democrats under the Roosevelt to Johnson coalition. But uh, that's over with now. It's the red interior that's a vast majority of the uh, territory of the United States. And then when you adjust it for population, balloons pop up. Uh, based on population, and we're half and half. You know, relatedly, um, I wonder if you agree with some of these observers who think we're in the midst of a, you know, and this is perhaps a more positive development, a national political realignment. So Democrats, you know, they've long hoped that demographic change was going to play solely to their advantage going forward. But uh, Donald Trump in this election surprised many by improving his minority support, you know, especially among Hispanics in Texas and in Florida. So you do have you know, leading politicians, perhaps future presidential candidates like Marco Rubio, uh, Josh Hawley, they're now proclaiming the GOP to be the party of the working class. So I wonder, you know, how do you see the future of the two parties playing out in the next decade? Is, is that development gonna continue uh, with the GOP representing more of a working class constituency or, or, you know, how do you see that? It's very important because when you talk about recalibration of constituencies, what we're basically talking is who gets the middle class? Because if we vote by race, say white males, they're only 35% of the population. The entire black population is only 12%. Entire Hispanic is somewhere from 10 to 15%. But when you talk about the middle class, we're talking about 60% of the population. So whoever can capture that class constituency that even transcends race, they're gonna win. And traditionally, the Democratic Party always started the election, both in the Electoral College and generally in the voting with advantages because they were the lunch bucket party. But what's happened now, it's, a, it's really interesting for the Republicans because it's happening simultaneously with the Democrats and the Republicans, it's just not just the Republicans, it's the Democrats who do not like the middle class. And they don't like uh, the idea that you have to have industry and carbon and fracking. They don't like uh, our ch school choice or any of these issues. So it's a boutique party of the two coast and the subsidized very poor. And in that vacuum, the Trump Make America Great agenda has said, we're now for people who have legitimate uh, worries about the social direction of the progressives. They, they're not comfortable with unlimited abortion. They're not comfortable with uh, the dismantling of the Second Amendment. They're not comfortable with the public schools and teachers unions, but they have a nationalist populist agenda. And that means we want fair rather than free trade. We want uh, legal immigration only and secure borders because otherwise the wages are driven down and identity politics fragment, fragments the body politic. We want to have a reset with China. We don't want to have the continual idea that we give concessions, 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 and then they're supposed to democratize as they get wealthier and we get poorer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been very, welcome for the Republicans because the, they're welcome to get, they're getting the, the middle class that was given to them on the platter by, their, by the Democrats. And the only danger in these coalitions and these transformations is 
do you offend somebody by appealing to somebody else? Well, the Democrats offended the middle class by being a party of Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Hollywood, professional sports, etc. because those are liabilities in political terms. But the Republicans, all they have to worry about, are they going to alienate their caricatured aristocratic golf course, oligarch, whatever team the term the left used of, of wealthy republicanism, the Romneyism uh, party. And I don't think they are. I know there's a, a never Trump segment, but a lot of conservative, quite successful business people are perfectly happy to uh, close the border and to uh, recalibrate with China and to, to do a lot of stuff. The agenda, in other words, is not antithetical to what they're what they see themselves as as Republicans. Uh, you, you know, you just alluded to this, but the, the nexus of what you might call progressive power uh, seems to have expanded, uh, certainly has expanded in the Trump years. So instead of a press that was, you know, biased toward the left, as conservatives have long complained uh, about, you, you've now got a media that views itself almost unapologetically as an advocacy an advocacy force, um, you know, a social justice crusader. And, and now even more striking, you have these social media platforms which have started to abandon the idea of really being platforms and neutral platforms. And they've openly started in this election cycle uh, to, you know, shadow ban and censor opinion and arguments that don't reflect the consensus worldview of people who work for these tech companies, which, you know, 99% of political donations uh, from Silicon Valley go to the Democrats on some estimates. So, you know, how do you see that um, nexus of political, political power, progressive political power uh, developing further? And what do conservatives, people on the right do to uh, fight this development? Well, that's a big question. It's very... It's very dangerous. I'll give you an example. I, I, I was very upset about a Stanford Daily, the uh, Stanford University Daily newspaper who, that attacks Scott Atlas and myself for having conservative views, basically. So I wanted, I sent a letter and they said, you have to have a hyperlink for every story. So one of the, uh, for every point you make. So one of the things I said was affidavits have come in alleging voter fraud and there had been lawsuits both true. It doesn't mean that the election was changed necessarily, but I just did the hyperlink. When I went on to Google to find affidavits or lawsuits, I had to go through, I don't know, 80, 90 hits. And they were things like Reuters, AP, New York Times, all of them, the marquee labels that, uh, that a venue would like. And what did they say? Fake affidavits, fake affidavits, fake affidavits, fake affidavits, fake lawsuits, fake law. And then you get down to, you know, a local TV station in Pennsylvania says that all of these affidavits are pretty accurate because people saw this. So there's a nexus between the biased media and then the way that that is, again, force multiplied by Twitter, Facebook, Google. And then we're in a 360 degree chamber and panopticon because, as I said, you have the Hollywood stars, Robert De Niro yesterday, all these guys coming out and congratulating uh, Mayor your Governor Cuomo on his great press conferences, which were deceitful to say the least. And then you've got LeBron James and the NBA talking to the Pope the other day about injustice in the United States. None of them, by the way, wearing masks, which they told us we have to do. And then you've got uh, 
the network news, you've got New York Times print media, and when you add the, the wealth of Wall Street and Silicon Valley, you can see why Republican congressional and senatorial and Donald Trump were outspent about two and a half to one. So that's a lot of levers of influence and power to overcome. And what do we have in, we have in opposition to that? We have things like the Manhattan Institute, the, supposedly the Hoover Institution, but the Supreme Court maybe, talk radio. But even there, these pressures are so insidious. I can tell you that even where I'm identified, and I don't mean that in a snotty way, but just as a conservative, even in conservative institutions like National Review or the Hoover Institution, there are enormous pressures on the, them. And so conservatives, even when they say they're conservative, these social cultural uh, forces are, so, and they're insidious and they're implicit, but they do change people's minds. So it's very hard to find people who are conservative that, that are proud of it and are willing to take the, uh, the career hazards that come with it. You know, we've, and this is another related question, we've written a lot at City Journal over the years and at the Institute about the growth of uh, the, the bureaucratic state, the administrative state, as a kind of freedom eroding force. Uh, and this is, you know, it's not a new problem. I, I recently read a book from the mid-60s on uh, the history of Congress by James Burnham, one of the founding writers of National Review. There's a long chapter on the emergence of a permanent bureaucracy as just this kind of a threat. And you've, you know, you've written in, in your books uh, about how great empires and political powers tend to create deep states. Um, you know, we've certainly, I think, seen evidence of this in the resistance administratively to the Trump administration. You know, a perfect example is this uh, revelation a couple of weeks ago that senior uh, Department of Defense officials were hiding the true level of our troop engagement in Syria from the president. And, you know, the Washington Post's defense correspondent then takes to Twitter to endorse and laugh about this deception. Uh, you know, what's what's your view about the growth of the administrative state, its role over the last four years, and can any anything really be done to diminish its influence? Well, it's part of the arsenal that I, we talked about just a second ago of forces that are progressive in nature. And these are the unelected and they're not accountable. And you mentioned this latest deception about true strength. Remember, that's how the administration ended, but it, it began by another defense operative. I think her name was Evelyn Farkas. And she bragged on CNN that in the last days of the Obama administration, they were desperately trying to uh, change security clearances to give more classified information to as many people as they could to get out things about Donald Trump, i.e. this will facilitate leaks. And when you add in the anonymous person that we were told was a high administration official, I think that was September 5th, 2018, that op-ed in the New York Times, and everybody from Eric Kleinsmith that allegedly altered a document for the FISA court to the so-called whistleblower uh, Lieutenant Venman, and we never, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Venman, we were never allowed to show his relationship with other people within that apparatus. So it's everywhere. It's insidious, and they have, they're, they're much more dangerous than were the Versailles apparatchiks under Louis XIV or 
the Spanish bureaucracy at the El Escorral under the, the 18th century heyday of the Spanish empire, or even, you know, the, the clerks um, <laughs> in, under Justinian at Byzantium, and he, he got rid of them. I won't tell you how, because I'm not uh, suggesting that remedy, but the point I'm making is that there's always an administrative state, but this administrative state had not been as powerful. Partly it was after World War II, partly it was the Johnson Great Society. But we have millions of state, federal, local workers, and they're emboldened to bigger government and higher taxes for limited self-interest. But there's a cultural ethos that permeates these these uh, offices that says uh, America's past is questionable, and we have to have a quality of result rather than opportunity. And anybody who's a Republican is suspect, and their edict should not be taken seriously. And, and how do we get through it? I, I think we have to really look at some of the 19th century civil service laws that suggest that people can act with impunity or federal prosecutors can try to dis destroy somebody by threatening and threatening or filing multiple lawsuits of the sort of things that we know happened to Scooter Libby or Conrad Black or Michael Flynn. So there, it's a multifaceted idea and uh, and we, we can see it everywhere. and. There, the administrative state is in league here in California with very diverse groups. It can be the La Raza uh, ethnic pressure groups, or it can be the Sierra Club on forest policy, but they don't consult conservative or independent uh, bodies nearly as frequently, if at all. Here's a question from uh, one of uh, the viewers, Helmut Fleps. Uh, he refers to an article you wrote um, back over the summer, in the summer, how cultural revolutions die or not for National Review. And uh, he says he, he finds the point illustrated in the article of cultural revolutions and transformations that they need a kind of figurehead or, or a cruel political leader uh, in order to survive. He, he found that insightful. Um, he, he asks, how do you see the Make America Great movement existing beyond Trump, who was its, you know, figurehead. Is there a Trumpism possible without uh, Donald Trump himself leading that um, political drive? I think there is. I mean, we don't talk anymore about the Perot voter because Perot is gone or the Reagan Democrat because Reagan's gone, but they reemerged under different uh, auspices. They, were, they came back under, I suppose, the Tea Party. And then the Tea Party didn't have a charismatic single leader, but that movement came back under the MAGA movement. And so what we're really talking about is, is there a conservative social cultural movement that can be grafted on almost, uh, I should say, within the Republican Party and change it on the key issues? We're not talking about refashioning the entire Republican Party. One of the ironies of the never Trump people were that they could not stand Trump's supposedly smelly fingerprints or dirty fingerprints on all of their issues. So they, while they may have, a, uh, they disagreed with them on the key MAGA issues, i.e. optional interventions in the Middle East or China policy or tariffs and free, uh, suspicion of free rather than fair trade, reindustrialization, they surely were mostly on record for fracking and First Amendment and Second Amendment, at least they were until Trump came. 
So it's not a it, it's a refashioning. It's not a break completely with the Republican Party. And the question is, we'll see very quickly, Brian, because this January 5th election, everything is up for grabs, not just the control of the Senate, but whether we're going to change policies or change the way we make policies by packing the court or getting rid of the electoral college or the filibuster or whatever. And that it's going to be a seminal election. And I don't think the Republicans can win those two seats unless they're completely united and Donald Trump goes down there in mid or early December, has a lot of rallies, does not whine about the unfairness dealt to him in the election, but says, you know, in a Jacksonian fashion, this isn't over. We're not going to get mad. We're going to get even. We're going to take these two seats and then we're going to expand. We're going to take the House. We're going to expand the Senate. And then we're going to have the mega agenda take over in the way Jackson came back. And we'll see whether that means he's a kingmaker uh, or that he's going to run again himself. I will say that when you look at what people in the Republican Party who have been identified as possible running uh, ca candidates that might run in 2024, whether it's Nikki Haley or Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or new, new fate, a little bit newer fate, Governor Noam in um, South Dakota, or any of these others, Mike Pompeo, I can't see any daylight at all between the Trump agenda and their own. And in case of the former candidates, they've had to make a lot of contortions in the pejorative sense or in the positive sense adjustments. And so anybody that goes down to Georgia and wants to, to barnstorm the state as a preview of their own viability in 2024 and start to say things like, let's get rid of the wall or let's have open borders or we need it. We need a new detente with China or, you know what? Uh, I, I think we just better let, let drop the NATO issue on contributions or we've got to let the free market creative destruction to adjudicate what happens in Flint, Michigan or Youngstown, Ohio. I think we really need to go and intervene right now in Syria or something like that. I just don't think that's going to be a viable political trajectory for them. Well, this uh, this leads to the next question. You know, the Trump administration's foreign policy, you, you called it Jackson, uh, was certainly disruptive from, you know, much tougher stance toward China uh, to renegotiated trade deals, the recognition uh, uh, of Jerusalem as the capital Israel to pulling out of the Paris, you know, climate accords. There are a lot of pretty disruptive things that were done. Assuming, you know, as seems highly likely, the president's legal efforts to change the election outcome fail and Joe Biden is inaugurated. Um, I wonder if you could speak to how you think America's global role is likely to shift, what what that new foreign policy is going to look like. Is, is there going to be any continuity with some of the things that happened uh, under you know, under Donald Trump. Well, I always look at, I try to read every day a lot of left-wing things to see what the mindset is. It's, it's very subtle what's happened since the election. So I think what we're seeing now, if you read the New York Times or some of these foreign policy blogs, it runs something like this. After blasting Trump as disruptive and destructive and nihilistic and he's ruined our reputation, we have no allies, it runs something like this. It's very important to reach out now and to, and then what follows is kind of trimming around the edges. 
By that, I mean, nobody is saying we need to go back to where we were under Obama and George W. Bush with China. In other words, after COVID and after our, the anguish of our allies like Japan or South Korea, or the Philippines or Taiwan or Australia, I think the Democrats are going to say, well, we're gonna work with our allies now, but they're gonna have basically the same policies for a while, at least with China. Same thing in the Middle East. They're going to say, we got to get back in that Iran deal. And you know what? The Palestinians, you can't have peace without the Palestinians. And then they're going to go over there and talk to a lot of moderate leaders in the Arab world. And they're going to hear two things. The Palestinians are not the key to the Middle East peace. We're going to have a lot, we're going to pour a lot of money and development into the West Bank. And they will become eventually uh, within their own area as rich as Israelis. But we're not going to let them reach out to Iran. We're not going to let them ally with Hezbollah. We're, we're not going to let them cause trouble for us. And Israel is a key strategic ally. And that's a radical shift. And as we look at Iran right now, I mean, it's suffering inordinately from COVID. Its patron China hasn't treated it very well. Crashed oil prices have ruined its economy. Up, up, The sanctions are way, way different than they were before. They're really crushing. Uh, they can't give money to Hezbollah and they are in a very vulnerable position. So I just think that Jake Sullivan, you know, Ben Rhodes idea that we're gonna go back here and pick up this corpse of the state and pump it up with air again and make it a player for so-called Shia Crescent, it's not gonna be viable. Not that they won't, there won't be people that try that, but I think for a while, as we see with COVID, this administration did a lot of good things that were not, believe it or not, not partisan. I think the Democrats, for all of their invective, quietly think, well, this is pretty good policy we got with China. This isn't bad what we got with the situation we're in the Middle East. You know what? I kind of like the Trump bogeyman. He put pressure on Europe to face up to the responsibility. Here at during the COVID prop, wow, you know, we did get a, we've never had an election, uh, a vaccination within 10 months. And, you know, there are some questions about what constitutes a COVID case and what doesn't. And maybe these numbers weren't as bad as we accused. And maybe we'll hear that the United States is doing as well as European countries. And maybe by March, because Trump uh, helped bring into vaccinations at a rapid rate and their therapies, that uh, this isn't such a bad, we'll just emulate it. Because I don't see any difference in, in Joe Biden's policy and Donald Trump's on COVID whatsoever, other than the usual boilerplate mask. And I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a group of experts here. And I'm going to call in the top scientists. And other than that empty rhetoric, I think it's about the same as what Trump did. I think that's what's tragic about Trump because due to his skills and the methodologies he uses as an outsider to force change on a complacent kind of flabby bureaucracy and state, uh, it brought not just change, but change that was welcome enough that made progress enough to allow people who were the beneficiaries enough to start saying, oh my gosh, he tweeted the other day, or he was so foul mouthed. And so he's never going to get proper. Now I've used that image of, you know, Shane or the Magnificent Seven or Ethan Edwards out of the Searchers or Ajax out of Sophocles plays that that tragic hero does what we can't do, but he does it in such a fashion that once it starts to work, we have the luxury of dismissing him. I think that's where he is right now. And the Democrats are going to be prime examples of the people who dismiss him, but find themselves, find what Trump did useful for their own 
uh, agendas. I wonder uh, if you've got any thoughts about uh, some of the cabinet selections that are uh, being announced by Biden, or at least rumored. Um, you know, is is the Biden administration going to be more concerned about uh, diversity and appeasing, you know, the the its left wing base, or you know, do you think he is going to try to be more of a centrist, uh, or or maybe Obama light in how he uh, approaches governance? Yeah, I think what we're going to see is that um, Blinken and others that are being mentioned are pretty much Obama-Clintonites. And I think even the ones that are a little bit more radical are going to be having, or if this, it depends a lot on, I think Biden has been pretty careful because he doesn't know who's going to control the Senate. And he, they've treated the Republicans so bad in the Senate. I think Mitch McConnell's probably told them you're not you're going to be very, have to be very careful because we're going to do to you what you've been doing to us, and that means he's not going to be able to get it. I don't think Susan Rice could get confirmed for anything. To tell you the truth, or a guy like Eric Holder, or any domestic or foreign policy. So, I, I imagine that Jake Sullivan or Blinken, these are people that we all know from the Obama and Clinton associations, and they're sort of. I don't know, younger versions of John Kerry. And they have certain ideological ideas that don't work overseas. But again, I think when they when they start to look around and hear what the, the Arab states tell them off the record or what J Japan tells them about China off the record or what Australia tells them off the record or Eastern Europeans or Southern Europeans off the record or the UK off the record, they're going to say, we're all on board now. We all agree on climate change. We we all agree that you have to treat illegal immigration very humane, all this stuff. And then for a while, at least, you won't see much change uh, until the left gets, you know, AOC is going to get angry. And then you, I think within two years, you might see an apology tour or a lecture about gen American genocide of the type that Obama used to give when he was in Turkey or something. But other than that, I think they'll use what they inherited and then just veneer it with the, the, the liberal boilerplate. Um, here's another question. This is from uh, one of the viewers, Abby, and it goes back to a kind of, uh, um, you know, forward-looking uh, quasi-populist politics in the United States. He wants to know uh, what your thoughts are on how to make sure that some of the uh, conservative leaders going forward um, don't get tempted into embracing the kind of old-fashioned welfare politics or welfare policies in their pursuit of a populist constituency? That's a very good, excellent question, and I have the same concerns. Social Security really is near bankruptcy. and it, At the present rate, it, it will be non-viable. Non and uh, I think the answer is that Donald, and then, you know, when we gave a lot of subsidies during COVID to a lot of people and we did it in a way that was not fiscally responsible, even though we needed stimulus because to keep the economy going. But I think when the, all this ends, uh, there has to be an element of the MAGA agenda that has been missing. And, and I think populists have to say, we middle-class people balance our checkbooks and we cannot go off with these vast um, subsidies. But as we say that, it has to be coupled with appeals 
to the black and Latino and poor white lower or middle or upper middle classes in a way that's not offensive. They have to thread that needle. I think, you know, when Mitt Romney said in a pro, it was very unfair what happened to him because they, they leaked what he said. But when he said 47% of the people are not going to vote for me because they're on some sort of, it, it was, may have been true, but it's not the kind of thing that a, a person should say or should feel even. And I'm looking out the window and here in this, I think the average per capita income in my hometown is $13,000. And so when I go to the market, I don't see anybody that doesn't use food stamp, not one at, at the local Walmart. And in the summer when I go in there, everybody is in there because they can't afford, even though they have subsidized electric rates, they can't afford to turn on their air conditioning. So they're using Walmart as an air conditioner and their kids go and play with the toys. So I, I see that everywhere and I have two views of it. I think, wow, we've got a whole dependent class, many of them here illegally, but the other side is how are we ever gonna get these people uh, to feel what's in their interest is to be autonomous and viable and middle-class and they're trying, but it's very hard when the Democrats come and say, we were the ones that let you come in. We're, the, we're gonna bring all your family in and we're gonna give you all this stuff. And we have to say, we're going to give you better stuff. It's just going to take, it's going to have, you have to think it through a little bit more because we're going to create the conditions under which you can get better stuff yourself. And that, that's a big, it's, it's ripe for demagoguery and on both sides. And so I think Trump did very well, but you're quite, that's a long windy answer. Boy, somebody's going to have to do a lot better explanation. Than I just gave to how you address the social, social welfare state has to have limits on it even if it hurts this lower middle class that's emerging to be in MAGA, they have to be helped in a way that's greater than their hurt. Uh, the, you know, the pandemic has enabled a remarkably extensive assertion of government power. Uh, and I think nowhere more than in California. It's well known, as I mentioned at the top, that in addition to all of your academic work, your social commentary, you've kept up your family's uh, raising farm in, in Northern California. And what has your experience been like um, from that perspective uh, under lockdown in California? And how, in your view, do you think the pandemic may have changed uh, California more broadly? I'll answer the first, uh, the second part of your question first very quickly is that something's weird going on in California. I know that Trump lost I think 32% here in the state. And he, it was a little better than last time where he, he I think it was 36% or something along those lines. So I'm not talking about Trump himself, but whether it was a left-wing uh, bill to basically unionize and bring in the, the uh, Uber or Lyft drivers and not let them be independent part-time contractors, or whether it was to change some elements of Prop 13 as the first step to, to eliminate that, or most importantly, Prop 16, where we wanted to bring back de facto, uh, de jure affirmative action, even though we basically they ignore the law anyway. It says you cannot discriminate in the base of race, but that was, all those were soundly defeated in California, even though they, they were outspent. And the reason was that they're, were a lot of the majority of these 
contract workers were minorities and the majority of people who are most worried about racial preferences were Asian and Hispanic because they're the majority. If you, the, the white population in California is about 38%. It's about 40, 41% Latino, it's about 16 Asian. It's only 6% African-American, but they viewed that as the 6% getting advantages over them. And as a lot of people pointed out, so-called whites are underrepresented according to their population, most of the CSU campuses, UC Berkeley, et cetera. And so what I'm getting at again is that there is a emerging conservatism uh, because there's a feeling that we are run by about um, 50 square miles where there's six or $7 trillion of capital and that's Silicon Valley, Stanford University, UC Berkeley, corporate headquarters. And there's been so much money poured in there that those people are completely exempt and oblivious to the consequences of their ideology on other people, whether it's high electric rates or solar and wind projects or this crazy Stonehenge that we call high-speed rail near my house. It just sits there like a skeleton, $5 billion blown for nothing. Uh, all of these crazy are these forest fires that were completely due not to global warming, but to terrible forest management. I'm speaking to someone who the fire came 300 yards from our cabin up at Huntington Lake. So they're getting angry at all this and they don't like high gas prices. They don't like the highest income tax. They don't like the highest sales taxes and then the worst schools, the worst uh, infrastructure in, in the country. But they don't they don't know how that's going to be expressed. So that's, that's hopeful that you could have a conservative resurgence. If you had a very uh, charismatic conservative Hispanic leader or you are Asian leader or poor white leader from the poor white class, you would see something that, that would be quite astounding. I think it's going to happen because where we got here was massive illegal immigration, massive wealth on the coast, and then eight to 10 million middle-class Reagan voters, Pete Wilson voters, George voters that went to Idaho or Nevada or Arizona or Florida, et cetera. As far as I'm concerned, it's been kind of strange for me because I, I have to commute to Stanford once a week and then sometimes I go, but I haven't gone very, Stanford's completely knocked down to the point where if you walk on the campus, they will track your cell phone ping and you will get an email saying you didn't register. So nobody goes there, I don't go there. And I've been in this house where I grew up and it's been actually quite nice because all of the people I grew up with that I saw occasionally, but I was always going in and out, they're here all the time. So it's given me an appreciation again for working people. So if today a Hispanic guy I've known a long time, he's in the highway patrol, he stopped by. Uh, the other night, 20 farmers asked us to go to dinner and they were, they were just railing about Fox News and wanted to know what they could do. And it, it really is a good reminder that for me, that all of this stuff that we value today are ABCs after our name, our zip codes, they don't matter at all. And I think that's what Trump, the most unlikely of all people, given his glitzy uh, raconteur reputation, billionaire, all of that stuff, his suits, his snobbishness, but somehow he tapped into that. I don't know if it was because of the building trades or his affinities for workers in Manhattan, but whatever it was, when he went around the country and said, our workers 
our farmers. That was very strange for a Republican. And I, I'm just, just being here, I can see that there's a lot of people who are angry at the left. And when I was telling my wife, why is it we can't take our dogs on our walk around our farm? It's because of gunfire everywhere. Every night there's automatic gunfire. And it's from all, all of these rental houses out in the country. So I asked Jose, my friend in the highway patrol, I said, are you investigating that? He said, no, we don't care. It's, most of this gunfire is from people scared stiff of Antifa and protests coming down here. So they're practicing. They're putting up little targets in their backyard. They come home from work. They take their automatic pistol or AR-15. We're not talking about white militia now. We're talking about minorities uh, who really like guns and do not want any of that stuff coming where we live. And they wouldn't allow it. And so I think there's a, a lot of opportunity for somebody young and empathetic and a lot of it's i don't let's not discount symbolism if you have a sincere ability to connect with people of the middle class and you enjoy them and you don't just write them off as clingers or deplorables or irredeemables or biden i think called them uh ugly folk and dregs uh, you'd be surprised how how favorable the conservative agenda is for them. They like America, they like its traditions. They don't like what they see on TV with Antifa. They don't like, they don't want another lecture from LeBron James or sick of Robert De Niro. They don't like any of that stuff, but we haven't really tapped into it yet. I think Trump sort of took a hammer and kept hammering and hammering and then a little fissure broke in the dam and some water's coming out and somebody's gonna come along with a bulldozer. When that happens, I think we're gonna see some really strange thing. Uh, here's a question from a, a viewer, Adrian Peters. Uh, over the weekend, he writes, James Lindsay suggested that the American political scene has returned to a federalist versus anti-federalist debate where the feds on the left are the party of tyranny uh, for the greater good and the anti-feds on the right are the populist and nationalist groups for liberty. I just know, you know, if you'd seen that piece and, and what you would think about that argument. Well, that that's a traditional argument, but I think it's even a little bit more bizarre than that because here in California, the anti-federalists are all leftists because they're the ones telling us we're going to have sanctuary cities, states, counties, and we don't care what federal immigration law says. This is the way it's going to be. And we're going to let illegal immigrants vote in a Berkeley school board election. We don't care what the federal government says that citizenship, citizens only can vote in an election. And as far as gun rights go, we're going to violate the Second Amendment and make them so hard and remember, that's sort of what we heard in the primary from Elizabeth Warren uh, about the Second Amendment or Kamala Harris. They sounded to me like Bull Connor. They were saying, you know what? California is just better here in our state or Massachusetts is just better than this federal. A lot of it had to do with Trump. I understand that because they identified the federal government with Trump and therefore the federal government and Trump were both bad. But uh, and I understand they were hypocritical at somebody in Utah and Virginia say, you know, gun registration doesn't apply in our jurisdiction. And they have, and you know that in Virginia. And I think there's some places in Idaho and Wyoming that says, as far as we're considered, there is no 
Federal Endangered Species Act. But it's the left now who want to nullify federal law, and it really started with immigration. They don't want to follow immigration law. They don't feel they have to. They want to destroy the bureaucracy of enforcement. And I think I've written seven or eight. I have to quit writing on it. It's the same old thing. They are sort of like South Carolina nullificationists in the 1820s and early 30s that Jackson had to put down. Well, that's uh, that leads to a good uh, question from a viewer, uh, George Abood. Can you frame you know, the current political environment in the context of history, how does it compare to the late 60s, say, or the Roosevelt period of the 1930s? Do you think that the Republicans are better off now? And you've partly answered this with the strength of the Trump coalition, um, or are we, you know, really in a crisis moment? What's different today, as I said earlier, is what's different in the 60s was we didn't have the levers of society all in the 60s hands. And if you look at the Fortune 400 in 1960s, 70s, the great fortunes were still in mining, timber, oil, cars, production, maybe finance, but not Silicon Valley or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Michael Bloomberg communicate. These were global fortunes that were created. And when you look at how we reacted to the news, uh, the New York Times and Washington Post were very liberal, but there were they that liberality didn't always infect the actual news coverage. And the three networks, you know, it was eye roll whenever they talked about conservatives, but they made this the effort to act like they were partisan. Now all of that's gone, and it's replaced by big, big left wing money and instant communications that have the ability to deny us conservatives access to knowledge whether it's massaging a Yahoo or Google search or deplatforming you or canceling you out on Twitter or Facebook. And then when you add that regional component, it's pretty scary because people are now self-selecting in a, a federalized system. They think I can, I'm an American. I have all the benefits of being an American, but if I don't want to pay 13% of tax in California, I can just hop over the border border and you know, state line Nevada. And so we're having people, force multiply these ideologies by state and they're getting the red states are getting redder and the blue states are getting bluer and there's some purple states that have to be adjudicated so i think that's that's uh that's one thing as far as the, the future of republican party we're all happy we keep saying wow we did all these record things but let's let's be honest we won 15 percent of the African-American vote. We were happy, we're delighted. We won 33%, 34% of the Latino vote. We're just astounded. We, Trump got 73 million votes, but lost by 3 million votes. We're tickled pink that the Senate is maybe 50-50 and I hope of 48, you know, 52, whatever it is now. And we hope it'll be 50, 52, 48, 51, 49. We're, we're delighted that we picked up all these seats in the house, but they still won the house. And we're within a hair's breadth of losing two seats. And then that whole process of the AOC pressures, will, with that filibuster is lifted, then we're gonna see some things that we've never seen in our lifetime. Whether it's efforts to get new states as Obama advocate, advocated, get rid of the filibusters Obama advocated, get rid of the electoral college that Elizabeth Warren said, 
or uh, you know you'll see things with it with packing the court etc so we're doing good we're doing okay but it's an uphill fight and we tend to magnify our our victories when we if we look at the the general picture right now there is a democratic president and there is a democratic house and there may or may not be a democratic senate and we're in danger of changing the court to make it permanently democratic and i don't use i use the word democratic as a euphemism this is not the democratic party my parents were in this is a hard left henry wall the only thing i can think of in the past is something like the Henry Wallace movement, maybe the Adlai Stevenson, mostly Henry Wallace. And uh, so I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm in a period of depression in 2000, until 2022. Um, you know, a lot of questions are coming in just about how you, you see the, uh, you, you know, the tension or conflict between um, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and whatever remaining moderates there are within the Democratic Party, um, do you do you think that there's going to be a reckoning between those um, factions, and can the GOP use that to their advantage going forward? This is a question from Evan. Evan, over yeah. Well, the conventional wisdom, and I've kind of voiced it on foreign policy, is that no party does things that are not in their own interest. So given their losses in the House and the fact that the Republicans will end up only four or five seats away from taking the majority when they were told they were going to get soundly beaten, ditto the Senate, ditto Donald Trump's supposed 12-point national vote loss, you would think that people, when they looked at the returns in their totality, would say, hey, wait a minute, we had this, this congressman, I think from New York, she was, or maybe it was Virginia, say, hey, you guys, reparations and new green deal and medicare for everybody these are and ending fracking and all of this left-wing polarization and defund the police especially these are losing issues you're going to wipe us out so you would think that pelosi and schumer would say okay let's back off a little bit let's be a little bit more careful about our rhetoric let's get some we took the House in 2018 by basically lying to the American people. Remember those candidates, we were told Democrats were running vets, conservative women, Chamber of Commerce people. They got them in and they almost voted, you know, in unison to impeach the President of the United States for really nothing. And so, yeah, I think that's the logic. But do people always do logical things? They surely didn't when they nominated George McGovern to the biggest one of the biggest landslides in history in 1972. Anybody with any brains could have said, don't nominate that guy in his agenda. And yet they did. And so uh, what they should do and what they know they should do does not mean necessarily that they will do that because they have a lot of uh, IOUs out. Um, Black Lives Matter and Antifa are telling the Democratic Party, we basically rioted we caused dissension, we looted, we, we caused a general sense that Donald Trump was not in control of the major cities, and we did that, and then we stopped. We pretty much stopped right during the election and behaved, and we want something for that. And uh, that's what, and then the Democrats are trying to say, yeah, but you also did us some damage, and they're saying, no, we didn't. We were the ones that caused the chaos that made Trump looked like he was out of control. 
And so I think the left ha is making the argument, even though it's a false one, that they had more to do with Donald Trump not being president, if he's not to be president, than anybody, and they want to be paid. And they're, and they're more, the left, the hard left always knows more about the media and popular culture. So they're the ones that are on YouTube and TikTok and professional sports and Hollywood. And they don't have a lot of numbers, but they have a lot of cultural levers that they can use. So I have, I'd say it's a 50-50 chance whether they're going to be smart in 2022 or in the first two years of the Biden, or they're going to just be, just hand over government to the Republicans due to their radicalism. Uh, here, here's a question, uh, policy relevant. It's from uh, Southern California, uh, Jane Johnson. Um, she talks about Milton Friedman's statement that a country can't have both open borders and a generous welfare state. And she wonders whether, you know, the immigration issue is, is going to clarify um, in the uh, months and years ahead. Uh, she says, you know, for her, it seems to be a major stumbling block in straightening out our, our priorities nationally uh, and in California. Well, it's a very important issue. And there's zero evidence anywhere in the world that open borders have done anything but cause mayhem as we see i go to greece almost every other summer it's a complete mess if you go to europe you talk to somebody in eastern europe and there the german anger at germany is profound what's happened in europe and you, we saw what macron and the french are saying now about radical islamic terrorism inside France. They're saying things that we would never say, that if you are a French citizen and you were born on French soil to two French parents and you're a second generation Algerian and you endorse radical Islam, you're going to be in, you're going to be deported if we want. We would consider that unconstitutional and just unimaginable. That's what it's done to Europe. And here, that wall, some parts were re mostly rebuilt, but that 400 mile wall that will be done 400 miles is, is changed thing. And I, I mean that literally, I don't see a sofa out in front of my mailbox every Saturday morning because a lot, and then I talk to people who are picking peaches uh, right now, late season, uh, some late season table grapes. And they say things that are astounding. I'll, I'll see them and I'll say, what are you guys making? $17 an hour. I said, 17. He said, that's to us, not the benefits. So what I'm getting at is all of the old fights in California about minimum wage law, they don't exist anymore. People are uh, hammering uh, shingles on roofs not too far here, and they get hired off the roof. We're in a building boom because of uh, you know the COVID. Everybody's building. They want to live in the country. All of a sudden, labor is scarce. And that part of that, a lot of that is because it's, the borders are pretty much short, have been shut down for six months. And a lot of the people who are saying they like this, and that's why 50% of Hispanic people poll they want secure borders, is because wages increase. That was a brilliant argument that Donald Trump did when he said, I'm for closed borders and border security because I want my middle class uh, working constituents to have competitive wages and to have some say over the, uh, the, the employer rather than the employer say, take it or I'm going to go hire this guy from Oaxaca. So it's been it's been really amazing to see physically and just right around you the difference and to talk to people. And when you say some things like, I need some cement laid, hey, you know, 
hey, Victor, I'm sorry. We're not going to get any cement guys for six months. They're all busy. They're all being, and they're all being legalized. And so they're not illegal anymore. That was a, and if he, if he were to take that wall down or open the border, it would be a disaster. It really would. And so again, with Trump, we never give him credit for the humane thing. So it was a humane thing to tell people in Mexico, your own government has agreed to enforce part of the border. Please don't come up from Southern Mexico. You'll dislocate, dislocate your family. Your country needs you down there. If you're going to ever going to have social change, rather than having us as your safety valve. And we have to worry about people here, the majority of them in California, not, so-called white people, but Mexican-American, Central American, Asian, Southeast Asian. These are our people, and we're going to make sure they get good wages. That was a very powerful recalibration of that message. Very effective. Here's a question from uh, Randy Zhu, who's curious what a scholar of classics and history has to say about the hard sciences and Americans' relative lack of interest in the hard sciences, the sciences these days. Um, you know, what, what do you think more broadly, too, about where the academy is? Well, I'm, I'm a little worried about that because when you talk to people who know China pretty well, David Goldman or Miles Yu, they caution us and say, yes, we have to decouple from China. We can't have our pharmaceuticals in their hands. We've got to start making antibiotics again. Yes, we need chips. But then they the next almost immediately they warn you and they say, but of course, your STEM programs are now predominantly staffed or enrolled by people who are not Americans, whether they're from India or Europe or Asia or China. And so we don't have enough people in K through 12 that have a competitive math and science education because we basically have destroyed the curriculum. And we destroyed the K through 12 curriculum because the universities were willing to take students that did not have math or science or you know basic analytical and compositions or reading skills and we were going to put them in the liberal arts so what's happened in our education system is we took what once was a rigorous program to create an educated citizen in foreign languages philosophy english history uh, social sciences anthropology whatever we call it and we put that as an area that we told people who didn't qualify to go to college, you go into that area. And we kind of added the word studies to it. So instead of just, you know, history, it was women's studies, or instead of just literature, it was ethnic studies. Instead of sociology, it was peace studies. Or, And we've got a lot of people in the university that are not being trained very well. And they're, they're running up about $1.6 trillion in aggregate debt. And history tells us to answer the question more specifically, the most dangerous person in a society is the half-educated person who feels they're very educated and they're certified and they can't get a job. These are the thousands of mediocre engineer, engineering degrees that are handed out in the Middle East. If you look at suicide bombers, how many of them were studying engineering, including the 9-11 people? These are the Bolsheviks of 1917. These are the reign of terror mid-level shock troops of 1792 and 1793. These are the people Thucydides talked about in Corsaira. It's the middle class. These are the guys that are out in the street with Antifa. 
so many of my, I like to read the arrest records sometime when they publish what they're doing. They're all former students or currently enrolled or poorly paid baristas. This is AOC. AOC, before she became a congresswoman, bragged that she was an honor student and upper, she was from middle class and her name was Sandy. She had this degree. And then all of a sudden, when she went to work, I don't think somebody told her, I don't think a Boston University International Studies is very impressive to tell you the truth. I'll give you a job making drinks or selling coffee. So, and then you pay off your student loan and see if you can do it at minimum wage. So that's what we got to be careful and how to address it very quickly. I would get the government completely out of uh, the moral uh, guaranteeing student loans. I'd say you universities man them up, you have moral hazard. If they default, default and you're going to pay it from now on and i take the money to the, cut it way back and put it all in in vocational training highly you know highly paid electric we need electricians plumbers etc and there, it's a very noble pursuit and people can do what you and i are doing you can go out and wire a house and make 50 bucks an hour and come back and if you want to learn something get online you don't need somebody with a phd to pontificate you know about white privilege while he's trying supposed to be teaching you, you know, Shakespeare. So yeah, I think recalibrate student loans, tax the endowments, get rid of tenure, replace it by five-year contracts where you have to meet certain standards, get rid of the, if you, the teaching credentials say, if you want to get a teaching credential, fine. But if you want to get an MA in an academic subject for a year, that's a better way of preparing yourself to teach fifth grade history. We can do a lot at very little cost to uh, to break up this monopoly on the university. The universities, I hate to say to someone who spent a lot, of, most of my life in them, is not a moral institution anymore. It does a lot of damage to a lot of innocent people, and it's self-righteous, but it surely does not. I would, if I had to take out a loan and be warned about all of the uh, problems of paying that loan back and what it's really going to cost me. I would be much safer doing it at the local Selma car lot than I would at a major university because they're never going to tell you this major, this is the amount of money you're going to make with this major. Listen, 18 year old, if you major in this, this is what you can expect to make. And this is the interest it's compound. And this is how long it's going to take you to pay it back. And by the way, here's an itemized bill of what you paid this week in your tuition room and board. Did you know you pay for this, you know, advanced uh, associate, diversity dean of inclusion and equity and i don't think they ever do that so more transparency and more justice from people who should should have known that themselves without coercion well victor i i think that's all the time we've got um thank you very very much for this uh thank you tour, tour of our current situation uh, it's been a pleasure um and thanks to you know, everyone for joining us and watching. I encourage you to sign up for our daily City Journal emails. So thanks again, Victor. Thank uh, and thank you all for watching today. See you all soon. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.